This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Playing the Assassin. Shanghai Sand. Clark Ashton Smith. And chrono-adjusted historical annoyances. It's the critical moment in the heist of a lifetime, but things have gone sideways. Bullets are coming from all directions, so you need to think and act quickly. Find your friends. Keep your head down. And don't tip your hand. Never Bring a Knife is a social deduction game with less talking and more shooting from our friends at Atlas Games. In Never Bring a Knife, each player has a secret role, cop or criminal. Pay attention to figure out who's on your team, then work together to take down the opposition. When the first player falls, their whole team loses and the other team wins. Never Bring a Knife is fast, it's action-packed, and it has duffel bags full of cash. Actual duffel bags full of cash not included. It's also available in friendly local game stores and online starting Friday, January 17th. Stop in and pick up your copy or go to atlas-games.com slash never bring a knife. Or follow the link in the show notes. Because guns and money always make game night more fun. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniature, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome you once more to the gaming hut. And in the gaming hut, we're all the... Oh my goodness. Peter Frampton's slumping over his guitar. <laughs> oh no, not Peter Frampton. There's a tiny dart in the back of his neck. No one eat those Doritos. They might be poisoned. There's an assassin in the room, Robin. And the assassin is you. What happens, Robin, when you sit down to play a game, you open up your pre-generated character because you're at a convention or it's a one-shot and you read, you are an assassin. Um, besides rejoice that you've been given permission to ruin the game for everyone. How do you play it without ruining the game for everyone? Well, um, so I, uh, guess what? I, I recently had this experience. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I got to actually play in a game uh, uh, recently when I was at the That seems game. unwise. Uh, uh, Jason Durrell ran a, a game of Elric, uh, exclamation point. And, uh, so uh, both within the, both a diegetic explanation point and a narrative explanation point. Exactly. And so, uh, now, uh, when, uh, when Kat later heard that I had, uh, played the assassin in this uh, game, she went, Oh, Robin is always evil. But, uh, this, this was the very last character sheet. Everybody else got to pick their character sheets. Uh, and then I took the courtier. And uh, and you know what's you, what happens if if everyone else leaves you the apparently useless character, and it's in uh, the the world of Michael Moorcock, mm -hmm. you know, even without uh, Jason uh, taking a couple of the players, including myself, aside to for some secret whispering, I think perhaps even the other players knew that something was up. Something uh, was this, up. This is this is well signaled. I mean, I guess you should just be grateful you were an assassin, not a time traveling degenerate. <laughs> uh, well, I, that might have been that too. Um, yeah. <laughs> we actually fought time traveling degenerates. So, uh, but anyway, so without saying they fight among themselves. Yeah. So without saying, just do what I did. I, I thought it would be fun to talk about the uh, per particularly the example of being the assassin character, uh, but also in more broadly uh, how to play a ringer in a convention game and to. Uh, as you suggest, uh, if this goes wrong, you're ruining the game. So how can you do this disruptive thing where you're uh, given not only permission, but instructions to have a big reveal, uh, perhaps one with a, a bit of a betrayal of, of the mission associated with it, because otherwise it would just be part of the mission, uh, and make it fun for everybody and make it feel like that's the way the, the story is supposed to go. You can't guarantee that you're going to succeed, especially in a basic role-playing uh, engine game. <laughs> no, you uh, cannot. Where failure is uh, uh, not only around every corner, it's uh, every third corner is success and uh, the rest of the corners are failure. So, um, uh, Ken, you're given a ringer. What do you, uh, uh, what are your first thoughts? I mean, I, my instincts are to sort of figure out what's the core thing that's supposed to happen at this table. I mean, if you're playing Call of Cthulhu and you're given the ringer, you are a secret Dagon cultist or you are a secret Yog sothoth wizard then 
Yeah, everyone's sitting down to play Call of Cthulhu because they want to be driven mad and eaten. So you start, you you do it, and you uh, your goal is just to make sure that the big reveal happens about three quarters or two thirds of the way through the action, so that everyone has time to react with shock and horror and murder you uh, in in proper fun way. And 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 that's the and that's the basic activity. If you are in other games, there have other core experiences. If you're in Traveler or Shadowrun, and it turns out that oh, you're the you're the you're Mr. Johnson's agent, you're here to keep an eye on everybody, then uh, you have to put off your reveal as long as possible so that you can sort of quote win by saying, "Ha ha, I worked for Mr. Johnson all along," and then you detonate the briefcase, but you did it right at the end of the game, and so. Everybody's like, oh, that was good fun. Hurrah, we're in Shadowrun. Um, and you haven't ruined it by making it all about you when the player characters just want to do the run or they just want to uh, get the manganese from planet to planet or whatever it is that is ostensibly the purpose of the game that they probably signed up for because uh, no one ever writes, oh, and also one of you will be a secret assassin who will blow up the ship. Right. right. That's boring and dumb. Yes. You're, uh, you know, you're the uh, executive from uh, Wayland Utani, mm-hmm. and uh, you're the one that's going to let the monster loose. So now, again, um, in, in, in a game that's explicitly in the alien verse like that, that is part of that's like Call of Cthulhu. You are expected to sweatily polarizer it up and say, I don't know, maybe we should take the egg over here yeah. and um, uh, make everyone keep you on watch and then hope that you can. Uh, roll dice or manipulate the game to stealth out and touch the egg wrong. Now, uh, in a game where uh, things might be dark, but it doesn't necessarily also uh, supposed to end in tears, like in Elric, uh, you may uh, be in the fortunate position where the situation you're given is not to uh, be the uh, uh, surprise antagonist who uh, screws everybody else over, but that your reveal can still coexist uh, with what the other players are doing. So, uh, uh, one thing to uh, think about is how can I achieve my goals while also uh, helping everybody else think uh, that uh, rather than being, uh, you know, uh, Paul Reiser betraying everybody that you're, you know, you're pulling off the fake Mission Impossible mask and you're Tom Cruise after all, saving the day. So, um, so you're like the Scarlet Pimpernel. Yes. Um, right. And uh, I pimpernelled it up, of course, because it was a course you did. So I, because um, who wouldn't, given that opportunity? Yeah. So I made sure, you know, he was a an idiot fop until the moment when he reveals himself, and then he totally shifts demeanor and everything. But even if you're thinking of, uh, even if you're sort of supposed to screw over the mission or something, you can look for ways to kind of bring other people in and make sure that they're kind of protected to some extent, or that you seem uh, sympathetic. Uh, first of all, that will a, enable you to uh, fulfill the mission that the GM has given you on the character sheet, and also B, uh, make sure that it's a fun experience for uh, everybody else that they can, uh, you know, feel empowered, including feeling empowered by, yeah, I kind of suspected there was something up with you because I saw the GM mm-hmm. take you aside. Right? What with you drinking tea when all those people kept dropping dead? Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, another thing specifically about the assassin character, though, is that you have to be uh, very careful because the way that character is probably statted up is that you are pretty vulnerable except when you're attacking by surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, so you may also just have the, the sort of challenge of uh, making sure that you remain alive and uh, you also probably want to find a way to play the character so that uh, the other players uh, don't think of you as a dead weight, that you're contributing to things, but the fact that you're not, uh, you know, heading off on point in order to do furious battle with uh, the uh, the enemy is is also covered so that you are always uh, when you're making sure that you're only fighting to your advantage which is uh, by stealth or in the case of this game uh, when you get a uh, flamethrower magic uh, technology device from another Michael Moorcock novel um, and it turns out to be pretty good when you have a flamethrower and it's based on decks. Yeah. I got to tell you that. So if you can, if you get a flamethrower based on your deck stat, that's, that's pretty good. Good stuff. Um, and so I, I think that the challenge that people sometimes face is that they think, oh, I'm here to, to screw everything up and wreck it for everybody else, but uh, look for ways to uh, make sure that your agenda dovetails with everybody else's and that see what the other characters want and see how uh, you can promise it to them. Uh, after you uh, commit your uh, your terrible murder, and of course, make it as shocking and and uh, as big a surprise as, as you can, right? You don't want to just settle it up. It's a convention, right? right. Yeah. Gosh darn it! Yeah, you want you want the players to be guessing, and then the reveal to be satisfying, as you've said before. And and again, uh, GMs and story creators, 
the assassin is not going to work in a straight up dungeon crawl. Uh, he, the, the, the point of the assassin is, as you say, strikes from surprise and in a social setting or a, or a civilian setting. Um, you, no one brings Sir Percy Blakeney along on the dungeon and says, gosh, I wonder what that fop is going to do. Uh, I feel like an idiot bringing Bruce, a millionaire playboy Bruce Wayne on our scouting mission. What a dummy I am. Um, you, you have to set up a, if you snuck an assassin into the deck, this, there has to be a milieu in which it makes sense for an assassin to be operating. Um, and then that's on the GM and that's on the, the designer of the scenario, less so than on the player of the assassin. Because if you are Bruce Wayne and you're, or Percy Blakeney and you're being taken into a dungeon to fight hobgoblins, that maybe the thing to do there is at the very first fight to say, but I'm not just Bruce Wayne. I'm also batarangs out, hobgoblins dropping Batman. And then, uh, see our previous discussion as to how to play Batman. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So the, uh, and I guess you, you are, are uh, reliant on, uh, the jam having laid the groundwork for you to be able to function in, in the environment and the scenario and get to the point where you can maybe do the thing. And if you realize that it isn't going to work out, uh, that, uh, either the, uh, other players have moved the story in a direction where you're just not going to be able to use your thing or, uh, it's BRP, so you fail a roll and your leg falls mm. off or what have you, that you find a way to uh, still have a big impact on the story even as you uh, you know, are rendered ineffective uh, basically at the end of the second act so that you have some, some big move where you try your thing and it fails and, that, and see if you can find some way for that also to be big and dramatic rather than uh, you know, a stupid fizzle. Anticlimactic. Uh, in in this is not immediately relevant, but I'm going to tell the story anyway, because it's half my podcast. Um, it, back in my, one of my very first D&D games, uh, when you ran an assassin, you had to run it secretly. And you had to play as a thief, because no one would just hire an assassin. I think there's even a suggestion to that effect in a, a DMG or something. Yeah. And, and one of my players um, was playing a thief, but he would always ruin his thief uh, skill rolls. He couldn't pick locks. He couldn't find traps. He was terrible. <laughs> was terrible at thiefing. And so all the other players immediately assumed he was an assassin. And so they'd say, oh, we're just all going to go over here and you go scout out that room. And if anyone turns up dead, they were probably already going to die. Right. Uh, uh. And David, um, okay. And so his thief would then be sent off. It was very sort of, you know, for, for high school D and D, it turned into sort of a weird Beckett play <laughs> very early. <laughs> It is nice to have a patsy lined up. Right. It is nice. Um, but, but the, but the notion of the secret assassin can go two ways. And especially as you say, if you're at the mercy of the dice and you can't just, uh, MOS an auto kill when you need to, um, you are going to have to, uh, have some other thing that you can do that is a contribution, a contribution to the game. And that's why maybe as you are doing it in a social setting, have a courtier make sense. If it's a, uh, a, a, a shadowy run, uh, maybe he's the face or maybe he's the wheel man or maybe he's the rigger uh, so that, yeah, there's a reason he's not uh, there on the front line. He's back running the drones. Oh, and also he's got a sniper rifle and he's killing people, but we don't know that. Right. Because the, the I think the thing about the assassin reveal is it works way better in a one shot mm -hmm. where it's part of an arc rather than, uh, you know, third session of your D&D campaign, you, you know, you stab the king, you reveal uh, that you're the assassin. It's like, okay, well, well now what? <laughs> why are we hanging around with yeah, you? Why now? are we not it's turning cool. you over to the king's justice? Yes, we're we're all fleeing the the prince's men. This seems like kind of a drag. So it, it's uh, uh, something I think works much better in, in the shorter term, where people, even if they're sort of hosed by it, will enjoy the um, the drama. Yeah, because because again, that's what you're at a convention to do is to experience those highs, not to tell a connected continuing story. Uh, well, speaking of uh, picking locks, it's about time that I made my pick lock roll to uh, open up uh, this uh, chest. And I think in the chest uh, is a commercial. And then if we climb down uh, the chute uh, on the bottom of the chest, we'll find ourselves in another segment. Okay, Robin, you climb down. I'll just hold this crossbow.
You used to be a spy. You were part of the clandestine world, backed by the full strength of the security state. Then you asked the wrong questions. You found the truth. You found the vampires. And got burned. You're all alone against them. One player. One game master. Create your own agent, or take on the role of Layla Khan, ex-MI6 officer confronting her half-remembered past as a vampire thrall. Powered by the gumshoe one-to-one rules, designed for the thrilling intensity of head-to-head play. Play through three complete adventures for Layla Khan, or use them as templates to create your own mysteries. We'll give you the tools you need to battle the undead princes and crime lords. All alone. But will it be enough? Find out with Knight's Black Agents Solo Ops. At your security cleared local retailer or from the Pelgrane store. There are two kinds of podcasters on Ken and Robin. There are the Robins and there are the Kens. And sometimes they get together and talk about cases ripped from the headlines. Dun dun! Uh, dun. And in this case, uh, a Patreon backer Tom Abella, beloved Patreon backer, has done the headline ripping for us by pointing to a quite amazing article in uh, the MIT Technology Review about ships in Shanghai having their GPS signals spoofed and uh, creating a havoc in the shipping lanes. And people are referring to this uh, baffling technology that the GPS experts can't figure out as crop circles, as if they are saying, hey, Tom Abella, rip this out and send it to Kenny Robin. That was just a little marker for, the, for that. Yeah, we're, we're, we're very busy here in Shanghai, but if, if you could rip this out, that would really help. Yes. So uh, I'm not sure if you're even going to get to the part where we add weird things to the story because the story itself uh, is so complicated. It's amply weird. Yeah, amply weird. So the basic 101 on this is that there have been a number of incidents uh, in Shanghai on the in the port. That's, a, of course, a port on the Yangtze River. And uh, there's a lot of shipping traffic because, uh, as we all know, a lot of things are uh, being made in China and shipped elsewhere. And that requires things being shipped to them and shipped out of them. And there's a lot of, obviously, it's a huge booming economy just by itself. So there's a lot of traffic there on the river. And these days, uh, although captains can look out at the river they're on and look at all the other boats on the river, that they rely extensively on uh, GPS for navigation. But weirdly, there have been a number of incidents going back uh, over a year now where the, if you look at the GPS tracker, the ships are moving around where in reality they are in port or they're just somewhere else. So some somebody is hacking into the GPS system uh, and creating false movements for ships. And it's not just a false movement, which I guess is good news that it's not moving them to a false part of the river and sailing them around. It is moving them a little bit inland to sail to be not to sail, but to be located along the circumference of a circle on the, um, I guess it's the east bank of the Huangpo River, with the Huangpo being the sort of tributary of the Yangtze that flows right through downtown Shanghai. And the thing that is is fun is that each of these blipped GPS phantom ships or ghost ships, as they are excitingly referred to by the uh, Shanghai uh, police and uh, let me say that I am not usually a fan of communist law enforcement functionaries, but you call something a ghost ship and you have my respectful attention. Um, anyway, the fake GPS signals, uh, wherever the boat actually is, whether in port or on the river, are placed in the circumference of a circle around a factory uh, owned by the Sinopec Shanghai Petro- Petrochemical Company. And... Uh, no one knows if that is just a James Bond style villain cover and they've got a volcano down there or if it is a, a place where there was a, um, uh, a bunch of ghosts doing ghost things or if it's just the spot that the guy that the hacker with the with the mouse clicked on as the center of his arbitrary circle and uh, it has no more significance than that. But it's very exciting. Uh, they have on the MIT page, they have a sort of a live I guess it's not live anymore, but it's a, a recording of where the fake GPS uh, data goes. And yes, uh, they're sort of scattered all over that that East Bank in that area. But that that circle around the petrochemical company definitely shows up and disappears. It's it's a great effect, and I would advise using it 
keeping in mind if you're doing anything with a creepy GPS circle or any kind of creepy circle, I guess. Right. So among the theories uh, as to uh, why this is being done is because it's incredibly sophisticated. Uh, one thought is that it is the Chinese government itself testing out a, a GPS spoofing cyber weapon in order to uh, later use it uh, for example, to mess up opposing forces if if a, if a war starts. That would actually, you know, the GPS is so important to uh, modern navigation and technology that that uh, would be very useful to be able to uh, knock everybody's instrumentation off. And perhaps they're just testing it uh, in in Shanghai for whatever reason. Yeah, and the, and we know that the Russians, for example, have used less sophisticated GPS jamming in uh, the Crimea and Syria as well as during uh, fleet exercises in the Baltic and uh, the Barents Sea. So people malarkeying around with GPS is not uh, unknown at a nation state uh, level. Right. Uh, but that uh, raises the question of uh, why would China test its own technology and disrupt shipping in one of their own busy ports? Killing why possibly 50 people is, is, the, is the, the high end number of estimates of the number of fatal accidents that have been caused uh, over the year or two that this has been going on. Right. So that is possible because in the Chinese system, if you yeah. have enough juice, you can do what you want. Right. But it seems uh, odd. Another possibility is that this is the work of uh, uh, criminal uh, smugglers uh, who are confusing where the ships are in order to be able to move covertly and not be noticed. And uh, this could just be, you know, good old fashioned regular smuggling or... Even more suggestively, uh, this could be sand smuggling because it turns out that the sand in the banks of the Yangtze River is perfect for construction materials as, as a basis for concrete. It's the exact right amount of sand and a shipload of, of that sand is worth around $85,000. Uh, and so much sand has been sucked from the banks of the Yangtze already that it's a major ecological problem that banks are collapsing and there's a giant erosion. So it's now illegal. Um, but that hasn't stopped sand sucking ships right. from coming up with giant vacuum tubes to vacuum up this extremely valuable sand. The, the sand that is called soft gold because soft there aren't gold. enough cool things in this article yet. <laughs> and and if that's the case, it's one of those things where the veil out is even weirder than anything we can then make up to be the mysterious right. citizen Why, that's thing. simply sand pirates. That's not anything yeah. strange. <laughs> they call it soft gold. <laughs> right. Pause for four minute explanation. So we then have to make up something more interesting than sand piracy, or at least, you know, more adventure scenario uh, generating, because I think if you were to tell the player characters that their mission was to stop sand robbery, and that was the whole stakes of it, uh, it might be difficult to, uh, t to motivate them. They might go, well, why don't we go into sand piracy? Yeah. If all you need is a boat and a hose. Yes. Which, first of all, that's another story scenario, right? Is that yeah. you can uh, create that in your uh, imagined world or whatever, where uh, it seems like a perfect thing for uh, Ashen Stars or some other space opera game where you're just, you know, people are stealing bits of a planet. Uh, and on that scale, you could change it. So, you know, and the damage is so great that it's uh, making the planet uninhabitable and people are being killed and so forth and so that's a perfect scenario right there but one on earth uh, i guess uh where do you want to start the possibility that it's uh aliens messing with gps as a uh, prelude to an invasion that sounds uh, uh pretty uh, straightforward yeah i mean that's normal and you know certainly if the aliens are going to invade historically in 1897 uh, uh, they invaded london then in 1938 they invaded uh new york or the New York metropolitan area, technically. And then, obviously, nowadays, they're going after China because aliens love busy ports for some reason. I guess Martians, being canal builders themselves, have an appreciation <laughs> for ports and navigation that, that we do not. So, uh, th this could be the beginning of an, of an alien activity that they've, that the petrochemical company is actually full of, um, uh, guys with fixed grins and no belly button wandering around, uh, getting up to trouble. Maybe they're also involved in the sand theft because, uh, the aliens, uh, are using that sand, 
as Mars needs sand. Mars needs sand, and it needs good sand, not this garbage sand that they have there. But the, but it may also be using that sand in some sort of um uh, uh, uh to to establish like a dipole bridge. You know, you have to quantumly entangle the Shanghai sand with the Martian sand so that you can teleport your ships there uh, through the, the wormhole rather than fly them through dangerous outer space uh, with all of its problems. And so the, the, there's any number of, of, of possibilities. And I think that the, the sort of the, the more fun one rather than an alien invasion is that it's an alien doing something else that this is just the spore of, that this circle is just where, like, a, a Michael Bolt got shot into Shanghai or a Loigor is waking up or something like that, and the the GPS is just scattering as a result of its ongoing either super-technological or highly psychic emanations, and all the business about sand and pirates and boats is is just sort of a a veil in, if you will, the, the, the lead up. And as you investigate that chemical company, you'll find that it is actually there to attempt to weaponize or monetize the effect of the alien beam. And so it may not even be that there's any aliens left that they did this, you know, in 2018 and are done and are on their alien way, but it's the Chinese government attempting to weaponize the sort of physics defying effect that is the actual uh, cover-up. And then, of course, once you've dub- dug into that, you can reintroduce the aliens if you feel like that's exciting or the or the mythos or, or whatever force is creating this weird uh, GPS circle. Right. And speaking of weird GPS circles, one uh, other possibility is to move fr- from a weird science in elliptony to magic. The idea of a circle being placed around a, a somewhere uh, seems to indicate uh, either a protective circle or some sort of ley line activity or... Uh, they are encircling this plant in order to destroy it so that, uh, you know, in the in the old fashioned days, you would have to go out and actually, you know, put a bunch of men here is around a, a bunch of uh, magical stones. Or you'd have to put carvings in the earth or uh, petroglyphs or what have you. But now our uh, 21st century magicians have found a way to uh, uh, there has to be some uh, significance and import to it. You can't just sit. Uh, in your bedroom with a copy of campaign cartographer and draw a circle around this plant. You've got to have uh, something, uh, movement and change and energy in, in the world. And so, uh, but the GPS system is very important. And so if you uh, tap into that and move things around and draw a circle around that plant, you protect it, gain power over it, or are just beginning uh, your way, you know, uh, it is called crop circles. So uh, you may be establishing a new uh, network of, uh, of earth power, uh, around China, and uh, that uh, makes a lot of sense. And perhaps uh, it's someone who's trying to achieve uh, power not just over that plant, but to tap into the economic power of Shanghai. So you may, uh, this is moving us into unknown army sort of territory, or it's a little too subtle and sneaky to be esoteric. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if that, if that circle then has another uh, sort of uh, sigil squiggle in the middle of it eventually. Perhaps they're trying to create the yellow sign. It's uh, maybe Carcosan activity. Uh, the other thing that's possibly going on besides ceremonial magic or sorcery is that the GPSs themselves are looking over there, that it's a Skynet situation, that the boats as they sail by, the, the guys there at the petrochemical thing, are, it's a cover and they're actually building Skynet. And as boats sail by, their GPSs are looking toward it uh, because they're distracted by the secret Skynet satellites instead of the proper GPS satellites. And so what we've got here is is a uh, an artifact, and maybe that artifact has been covered up now. I mean, I don't know if this is an ongoing situation in Shanghai uh, six, eight months later, but if it is, it, it could be that Skynet is continuing to awaken, or that this is the sort of equivalent of all the, the bats coming to Castle Dracula as all the little GPS signals pop over there to pay homage to the birthing um, uh, uh, machine avatar. Just to uh, step back a bit back into the uh, magical side of things, uh, if there are ships that are being turned into uh, metaphorical ghost ships, uh, perhaps that is not targeted at that company or uh, at the economy, but at the people on the actual real ships who are being moved around and turned metaphorically into ghosts, which, of course, is the first step into actually turning into ghosts. So it may be a means of achieving magical or psychic domination over the crews of those ships and uh, then awakening them as uh, sleeper agents to accomplish uh, whatever, uh, no doubt, maritime mission 
uh, this shadowy force uh, has in mind. Well, uh, this story is so crazy that we could just sit here all day and make up uh, more things about it. Uh, but uh, I think our GPS is being relocated uh, around this upcoming commercial, uh, and that will lead us to an entirely different segment on the other side. The best of Asphageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Save this podcast from assassination by joining such beloved Patreon backers as Joshua Brumley, Luke Silburn, Gray St. Quentin, Michael Bowman, and Paul and Cleo Bushland. Ordinarily, there would be clanking chains, there would be a wolf howl, there might even be the sound of a cloud of bats overhead, but... In this installation of the Horror Hut, we have sort of a weirdly menacing magenta light and someone laughing at their hand behind us. We don't know what they're talking about, but they're a magician, maybe. And also there are werewolves and golems. Because right, and it smells kind of mephitic in here. It does smell mephitic. You're right. Now, now that you mention it, uh, we, this is no doubt uh, the stigmata of the presence summoned into the Horror Hut by beloved Patreon backer Thomas Wolfe who asks, you have described Jack Vance as occupying a point between Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard. Other sources refer to Clark Ashton Smith as one of the big three of weird tales alongside H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard. Why do you think Clark Ashton Smith did not make the list for AD&D's Appendix N when Vance, Howard, and Lovecraft did? Are there any works from Smith that listeners should mark down as must-reads? Uh, Robin, this is a big box of fun. Uh, do you have a uh, speculation as to why uh, Gary, in his wisdom, ignored uh, the best prose stylist of the Three Musketeers? Um, I would guess because uh, Smith was uh, hard to get in print in the early 70s. <laughs> That's one possibility. The, the Ballantine editions, uh, I think, had come out, but they were certainly not uh, newsstand regulars. And uh, I know certainly the ones that I got were all like a UK import paperbacks. Mm -hmm. One of the uh, issues that people raise with Smith, who was also... A, a poet and a translator and a sculptor and, a, and an artist. He lived kind of a solitary life. He was in touch with his, you know, he lived in California and he spent time with his parents, but he sort of lived uh, kind of alone in a cabin, I guess, for a lot of his life. And he was yeah. an autodidact. He read the dictionary cover to cover as a kid and his pro style shows that. Mm -hmm. Which is, which is why it's odd that Gygax didn't mention him given that. Oh, they... you beat me. To, you beat me to my punchline. Yes. Because oh, yeah. lots of other people will complain about the ornateness of uh, Smith's prose style, which uh, rivals, if, if not surpasses, Lovecraft's. But, but uh, Gary Gygax wouldn't have a problem with that. No, sir. No, sir. So I think it's probably just the chance thing of sometimes unexpectedly people haven't read or seen or watched things that you think they maybe have, would be my guess, rather than an, an intentional omission. But I guess the wider question is why among the three is... Smith not as well known, uh, not as well read or adapted into other media the way that uh, Lovecraft and Robert E. Uh, Howard are. And rereading the stories, uh, some answers to that came to mind. But what do you think? Um, my my main reason is that Smith, 
his imagination is every bit the equal of the other two, but his conceptions, I guess, and this is where very much against my will, I'm going to sound a little bit like S.T. Joshi, but Smith does not have, as far as you can tell, a particularly underlying philosophy in his writing. Howard is very much Oswald Spangler with an axe, right? It's like the decline of the West, barbarians, urgh, so much, urgh. Uh, Lovecraft, of course, the cosmic nihilism, uh, the, 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 the fear of contamination, all these giant themes that pour through him. Smith is just writing terrific stories that, um, he, his, you know, youthful flirtation with decadence is, was gone as a, as, as a, uh, artistic or political belief, but he is now just writing stories in the style that, that he is capable of doing, which is a, a, a lush, ornate, beautiful style. The other thing well, is l- that... Before you move on to the other thing, let me amplify the, that right. thing. Feel uh, free. Which is, uh, you are right that uh, the other two writers suggest an inverted moral universe in two different ways, mm-hmm. whereas Smith's moral universe is conventional good and evil. Uh, there's good guys, there's bad guys, and the, uh, the bad guys... Uh, generally get their comeuppance or destroyed after hurting or harming a lot of people and doing evil and the good guys uh, win there's sort of conventional romantic love in them so there's uh there is disturbing imagery and surface detail throughout but the idea that the moral universe has been knocked on its head is absent from smith right and on a more structural note uh smith doesn't have any recurring characters uh, lovecraft at least has near Lothotep who is a recurring character, if you want to call him that, showing up on stage more than once. Uh, he has, of course, the Cthulhu Mythos, which becomes its own recurring character to a very large degree. And he even has uh, one or two uh, figures that, that, that pop in and out of the stories from, from place to place. Robert E. Howard famously, of course, wrote series characters. That was the way to make fast money in the pulps. And so he writes Cull, and he writes uh, Conan, and he writes... Solomon Kane, and he writes Turlo O'Brien, and he writes El Borak, and he just character after character after character. So with Howard, with uh, Howard, there's always a next thing to read because you're like, oh, I want to know more about Conan, and I want to know more about Cull. But the only recurring characters in Smith are uh, Philip Hastane, who is sort of the narrator of some of his modern day set, more conventional weird talesy stories, and. Of course, Satampra Zeros, who appears in a gigantic two stories in the Hyperborean cycle. All the other stories, Zothique, each of the Zothique uh, stories is about a single uh, protagonist. And then that protagonist meets a messy end, usually. And then we go on to the next one. There's no Kujul the Clever, for example, to link uh, Zothique together for us. And without an ongoing central character... Uh, it's hard to build a fandom. It's it's hard to be, you know, people don't go up and dress up as a prose style by and large. So that's just right. the thing. The strengths of Smith are his style, um, although they don't benefit from reading a whole bunch of them in a row because okay. even like Lovecraft gets zinged for using certain uh, go-to words that he doesn't actually use all that often, whereas Smith really does use certain words again and again, uh, even in the same story. And so that uh, kind of is a a bit of a blemish on uh, otherwise his ornate uh, pro style that people celebrate him for. He also has a a really great sense of place and detail that everything that is happening in these stories seems to be happening on a gigantic uh, set that you would need, you know, millions of uh, digital CGI dollars to to evoke that the the places and the atmosphere are what comes home in a Smith story and the characters, as you suggest, not only do they not recur, but they're not particularly memorable that they're kind of stock figures of, of good and evil. And there, there is no complex characterization. That's not uncommon in the pulp era, but also the, the stories themselves are often either vignettes or just, it sets up a situation and then it kind of resolves the way you think it did. So the narratives themselves are not as, vividly memorable either as uh, Howard's also stock situations, but ones that he very vividly uh, realizes or Lovecraft's often quite strange uh, story construction as in, you know, Call of Cthulhu, which is a journey through a series of documents or uh, at the mountains of madness, which is a narrative that exists on several layers, including one that you're reading off the freeze of a, 
uh, an ancient ruin. And the things happening in those stories are quite unexpected and surprising, whereas it's, it's hard to recall a particular Smith story, at least the ones that I happen to pick up and reread that is like, wow, this really, it's like, you know, Hastain meets a weird guy in a weird house. Uh, he has this weird machine and then he turns into a weird statue. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, not nearly as uh, uh, complex or memorable as I, I think other great uh, narratives of, of the weird tale tradition. I, I guess before we get a bunch of, well, actually, yes, Maligris also appears in two stories, but Maligris is, if anything, an even more inert character than most Smith. Uh, because he basically sits in his tower and mopes. <laughs> so he's fine. I mean, you like a moper, I guess, but he's not, he, he's, he, he's certainly not, he's not even September Zeros, much less is he Solomon Kane or Abdul Al Hazred who's out there getting it done. Right. I guess the other thing about Smith that makes him hard to wrap your head around is that they are quite often horror stories set in a fantasy world. Yeah, uh, so it's, he's, he's, he's genre slipstream before they had genre yes. even yet. Yeah, so he was two neglected genres at once. Um, and uh, so uh, not only do you have to come to the grips with the world building, but then you have to be frightened or disturbed within the confines of this unfamiliar world. And those are the ones that I think are, are if there are ones that are vivid and memorable, it's that his one set in contemporary America are, you know, not a patch on his uh competitors or contemporaries so can you imagine what anyone would adapt to make a film version of one of his things it's like there's things are very cinematic there's a story about a sorcerer who creates a giant form of himself out of people's corpses and then goes Mm -hmm. on a rampage so he's sort of like a giant zombie kaiju which is certainly vivid but again i can't see you making a film out of that if i was to pick one story that i think is emblematic of his and works really well it would be the abominations of yondo uh story-wise it's kind of a vignette uh there is something more of a twist to that than some of his other stories and it is a great example of just his uh imagery and sense of scale and his creating unease and terror in uh an unfamiliar imagined sort of orientalist world yeah i I think if i'm gonna pick one and i like a lot of them uh, I even like the Hastane stories because I'm a sucker for occult detective sort of stories. But I think if I'm going to pick one of them, it's uh, the Seven Geuses, uh, which does the sort of amazing hat trick of being horror and fantasy and comedy. It's very it's a it's a shaggy dog story and a funny one as it just keeps getting worse for um uh the 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 poor main character there and it's uh smith working to his best because it's sort of a a, like i say a travelogue through uh hyperborea and sort of the the wild weirdnesses of that so i i i think if you're picking one uh the seven geuses although i am a big fan i have to say of uh, the vaults of Yovambis, which is a story set on Mars in the future where Martian archaeologists have discovered a mummy cave and uh, badness occurs, obviously, because it's Smith. Oh, right. Yes, I remember that from my uh, original. Well, vaguely remember that from my first read of uh, Smith back in my first big weird fiction jag. And, 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 I, and I love using it and uh, introducing it into ostensibly different genres. If you're like in a hard SF game and you're there and you see the carvings and it says, oh, it says Volthum for some reason. I wonder what that means. And people are like, oh, you monster. It's it, it's it's great fun. And it, it, it gives you that sort of uh, Lovecraft that stepped on a little bit uh, a sense if you if you insert it into other stuff. I, I'm a very big fan of of Smith's slipstreaming in general. And I think the Vault of Yovambus is one of the best ones that he does. And, and that brings up another of his strengths. Just the, his names of things are really cool. Oh, yeah. And uh, in part, I think that's because he was a translator. He, uh, uh, as we've sort of uh, glanced at, he was a, a translator of the Symbolists. He was a, he translated Baudelaire, and I think and he the, was a, he was a I don't say maybe an A list poet, but he was certainly a B list poet back in the uh, around the turn of the century, uh, hanging out with George Sterling. And I think that his uh, one of his uh, big influences seems to be. Uh, Gustave Flaubert's sword and sorcery novel, uh, Salambo, which uh, is a, a lot of uh, uh, fun, again, if you're willing to read something that's heavily Orientalist. 
Um, and a- as a footnote on a footnote, that is the opera that, uh, that Kane puts his, uh, his opera singing wife in, in Citizen Kane is an, non-existent adaptation of Flaubert's Salambo, but you can Fantastic. see big chunks of that in, in Smith. And that's uh, uh, where I think he's coming from that. It, and that gives him the flavor that a, a lot of uh, his uh, contemporaries don't quite have. And, and also, of course, a lot of his stories are set in Averroin and uh, an imagined fantastic version of France. Right. Which is sort of his riff on, I think, uh, James Branch Cabell's uh, Poictesme which right. was another uh, sort of a highly colored riff on France. And uh, I think, I think you, you can see Smith say and another influence on Jack. Right. And, and, and I'll do that. Uh, but with, with horror in, and then that's where the Averroin stories. And I like the Averroin stories as well. Um, they're all great fun. And some of them are genuinely uh, creeptastic. Um, like maker of gargoyles is just a strong little horror story set in medieval France. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of very good ones. Um, I think all the Averroin stories, probably repay reading the only downside is that it's france it's not a crazy imagined uh fantasy landscape like zothique or hyperborea he started with earth he just yes he did and and in fairness hyperborea is earth and zothique are earth he only he has one or two alien worlds in some of his uh uh, scattered later stories but uh most of his stuff is set on earth just in crazy imaginary earth uh well that sounds like a a conclusive note if ever i heard one so uh let's wrap up the horror hut and see what other hut waits for us on the other oh wait it's not a hut at all it's i I think i hear a time machine let's go let's go Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every Tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. The clacking of time gears and the worrying of chronotons alert us to the fact that we are, yes, indeed, uh, standing next to Ken's time machine. And this uh, is the conveyance that Ken, that you were usually sent back into the time stream to affect major changes in. But uh, this uh, week, for a bit of a change of pace, uh, we're going to look at some essentially insignificant but still salutary and I think very important things uh, that you did. And, and one of them I have the case file for is that uh, sometime... After uh, 1763, you intervened in the time stream to just correct something that was really annoying and terrible. And uh, it's around the name of a dinosaur. The dinosaur we know as Megalosaurus. It was the first dinosaur that was described as such from uh, fossils. It's one of the the theropod dinosaurs, uh, sort of the T-Rex family. And because of the way taxonomy uh, works, the Latin names that are assigned to uh, animals generally go back to the first uh, person who ever uh, assigned a name to an animal, even if they did so uh, weirdly in the case of, say, a fossil that you only have a a fragment from. But in this case, uh, so the first bones of of what we now know to be a megalosaurus were unearthed in 1676 in a quarry in Oxfordshire. And the uh, uh, first person to describe them and draw them uh, thought, oh, this is clearly a femur. Uh, but didn't think it was the femur of a giant lizard. They thought it was the femur of an extinct giant human. Yeah. And then nearly 100 years later, uh, another author, Richard Brooks, uh, saw the ways that the bone fragment was drawn. And from this, he assigned a Latin name to this extinct giant. Uh, and the Latin name he assigned uh, was 
Okay, and this is where sensitive listeners, you're going to have to cover your ears for a moment. The problem with the drawing of the femur was that it looked kind of like a giant nutsack. And therefore, he gave it the species name in Latin, Scrotum humanum. Uh, later, William Buckland dug up uh, other bits of another Megalosaurus, called it Megalosaurus, found out, and then it was realized that, oh, wait a minute, someone's already named this thing. What have they named it? Well, my cool name for it is Megalosaurus. What's the other? Scrotum humanum? What? what? And so eventually there was a big conclave of, uh, of paleontologists and, uh, and they agreed uh, to stick with Megalosaurus. And you are the one that we have to credit for this because until you were interviewing the time stream, and I almost sort of remember this, we had to call Megalosaurus's scrotum humanums. Well, we could just call them scrotums because you just used the first word, like Tyrant. Again, yeah. even worse. Even not worse, not good because you'd have to keep explaining. Right. right. I, I was out in the fields digging up a scrotum and then people are like, what? And it's like, it's a, it's a dinosaur. It, yeah. It was an, it, entirely insupportable. You know, keep, kids would ask for model scrotums for Christmas and just and any amount of confusion. Nobody wants this. Nobody wants that. And so, and, and I assume this is a, a matter of your going to the paleontology meeting where they hash this all out and decide to suspend the rules and you got the sticklers who were, uh, well, it's a stupid name, but it was the first name in the rules of the rules. You got those, gave them some extra brandy, I assume. Uh, no, what actually happened was I went back to the plates of the book in which uh, Richard Brooks put out his, his discovery, and I carefully capitalized uh, Humanum so that you could then argue, oh, that's just a caption. He's not naming it that. That's just a caption. Different thing. And in fact... In 1970, when they had this fight for the so far last time, although once frickin' Neil deGrasse Tyson hears about it, we're all going to have to start calling dinosaurs scrotums again. <laughs> but uh, but the uh, argument in 1970 was that Buckland was just using Latin tags for every illustration in his book, that he was not naming that thing in a Linnaean taxonomical sense. This was just a, a caption. So it would be like if you called it Meghan Markle left. Right. That's you're not naming Meghan Markle, Meghan Markle left. You're just captioning Meghan Markle. So that is the uh, that is the argument that prevailed. And it's all thanks to a little capitalization, just a little orthography. So I bring this up, Ken. Uh, this is all preamble. Thank God. Because I would like to know. <laughs> Imagine if this was the full amble. That, yes, this, this would be a this would be a, a medium amble uh, for right. us. Uh, but I knew about this case file. Uh, but this raises the question. What other micro changes have you made to the time stream for these sort of purely aesthetic or neatness reasons? Because usually Time Incorporated is worried about big uh, macro effects. The, some historical forces, of course, we've learned are too great for you to interfere with. But sometimes they notice something that's just really annoying and niggly that uh, that they would like uh, uh, altered. So um, are there uh, what other examples are there of... Uh, things that you have neatened up in this way or are planning to neaten up in the near future. The uh, the neatening, it takes a lot of forms. A lot of it is just sort of aesthetics, as you say. Um, for example, I don't know if you remember the great uh, California uh, party band, the Pendletons. Of course you don't, because I changed their name to the Beach Boys. Uh, they were named after a flannel shirt, which I guess you know, grunge avant la lettre, but the record label changed their name to Beach Boys because they thought the Pendletons was a terrible name, as indeed it was. So I was the guy who took Russ Regan of Era Records aside and said, you know, what's a dumb name, Pendletons. You know, what's a better name, Beach Boys. And it stuck. And in fact, uh, Brian Wilson liked it so much, he just wanted to call the band Beach, but had to be talked out of it. So that that was that was one of the things that I did. Uh, another thing. So what, what, speaking of renaming, was it you or some evil force in the time stream that made sure that uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus was called that instead of Owl Stretching Time? You know, actually, I was good with Owl Stretching Time. That was just Graham Chapman and I were having a lot of conversations and I was like, hey, man, whatever you want. And he went with... Uh, he went with Monty Python, but I liked Owl Stretching Time. I, I like that one, too. Um, also, you may be uh, glad, I hope you're glad, to hear that I discovered at one point in the time stream that I lived in, uh, I think it was, I don't know, New Orleans, maybe? Or I don't know what it was. It was some other city. And I was wondering, why am I why am I in a perfectly adequate but clearly B-list city? 
And then I discovered that uh, John Hughes had cast and filmed uh, Johnny Depp as Ferris Bueller. And I had not, therefore, had absorbed Ferris Bueller's Day Off into my soul uh, as, as a college student. It was my own timeline that I was neatening up. And so I went back and got him cast in the legendary skater film Thrashin so that he would be too busy to make uh, Ferris Bueller and they could cast uh, John Hughes's other choice, uh, Matthew Broderick. Now, not to get timey-wimey, but if you hadn't absorbed the awesomeness of Chicago, how did you know that you needed to absorb the awesomeness of Chicago? I have a time machine. I would show up and people would say, hey, have some Malort. And I would say, What? And they're saying, well, last time you were here, we, we had Malort. And it was like, I, I oh, don't know. So understand someone changed it doing. on you and you changed it back. Right. Yeah. I think that's probably what happened. Or maybe my or self is Chicagoan and had been stretching back and forth in time like a time ghost. It's a real thing. Time ghosts. Check it out. Uh, another thing that I did, um, this is sort of, I'm, I'm quite proud of this one. When a British school teacher and uh, a famed rationalist had his book, uh, Shakespeare Identified. Um, and he wanted to publish it. And, uh, the publisher said, maybe publish it under a pseudonym so that people don't get mad at you. But I'm the guy who took John Thomas Looney aside and said, you keep your name. You be proud. It's those other people that are a bunch of John Thomas Looney's, not you. And so, uh, the, uh, pernicious, uh, doctrine of Oxfordianism is now forever associated with John Thomas Looney. And there is no better example of uh, the pathetic fallacy that you that you can point to, or the pathetic fallacy, I guess. So that was a that was a thing. Um, one I think is is close to your own heart, Robin. Um, during the Great Canadian Flag Debate, I don't know how familiar you are with the second choice flag, but it is hideous. It is a blue band with a three leaf, a three branched maple leaf in the middle, and uh, it's uh, very very bad. But it was the one that was beloved by uh, your prime minister at the time, Lester Pearson. And he wanted that uh, flag more than uh, life itself. Uh, Pearson had many fine qualities, but flag picking was, uh, yeah. you're correct, not one of them. It, it's, it's not a good look. It, it's a hideous flag. And uh, they, were, they had a, a committee. The conservatives, of course, wanted to keep the Red Ensign, or maybe the Red Ensign with a maple leaf on it. And the uh, liberals... Uh, all wanted the crazy Pearson flag, which looked like garbage. And there was a uh, another flag that had been designed by the head of the Royal Military College and was the mostly the Canada flag we have now. It got expanded a little bit to make the white stripe wider, which is a smart move. And that was put in uh, basically to bury the Red Ensign because the liberals controlled the committee. And so the conservatives said, ha-ha, we will vote for the red and white maple leaf flag because the liberals will all vote for the Pearson flag and will be uh, deadlocked. And therefore at a vote, the people will all love the red ensign and will win. And so they were, they went in and they voted unanimously for the uh, single maple leaf red flag, the good flag. I uh, switched the ballot papers. So the liberals all walked in and thought they were voting for the Pearson flag, but they all voted for the correct flag. So it was unanimous 14 to nothing vote in favor of the uh, red and white maple leaf. Thus, guaranteeing that the committee had to report, being Canadian, they couldn't say, they couldn't lie, they, they, they were under a gaius, um, so they, they had to come out of their committee, they had had crullers, the beaver was there, the whole nine yards, and they had to say, well, we voted for this one, and then it set off a, a year-long debate, but since this was obviously the best flag for Canada, that's the one that won. But that was me. You're welcome. Um, and so, uh, that's great that you've uh, done all of these things, but... Uh... Uh, we have a weekly podcast, and uh, I think our listeners, as much as uh, they uh, love us, have sort of a uh, not just a what have you done lately attitude, but a what are you about to do lately attitude. And they exactly. want to know what your next uh, change to the time stream to uh, to neaten it up is going to be. I mean, I assume there's some sort of rule that you're not allowed to fix errata in in uh, game publications for some sort of cosmic balance reason. That would lead to total chaos. If you have a game publication that is released with no errata, then it's one of the uh, it's one of the seals of the apocalypse. I think it, unlo sure. it unlocks the lizard people cage. Right. Right. Exactly. The thing that I'm going to do when when next I have an opportunity, they they give me a couple of a couple of hours to myself, and by hours I mean months, um, because they give me a couple hours, it turns into months. It's a time machine. I'm gonna fix it so there's only one Congo. 
And I'm not going to unify the Congos because that would be mean, but I'm going to make sure that the original Portuguese name for the land north of the river, Loango, which was the name of the kingdom that was north of the river uh, and bullied by the kingdom of the Congo, which was south of the river, sticks. So that the Congo Brazzaville of today, the Republic of the Congo, can be the Republic of Loango, and you won't have to keep sorting them out and figuring out which one you mean. And I think that's just going to be a great uh, benefit to everyone. And I think that the French, uh, the former French Congo, the uh, Republic Congoese, the Brazzavillians, will all be very happy to have their own name for their own country. And when they're overseas and they say, we're from Congo, and people say, oh, you mean Zaire? And they're like, no. And if they just can say, we're from Luongo, everyone will say, oh, you mean that great, cool country that's between Gabon and, and Congo? And they'll say, yes, indeed. Uh, well, and, and after that, I think it would be great. Some time-traveling meddler changed the Canadian Football League, so there were no longer... Uh, Any Rough Riders, I know. Yeah, that's so there's no, my yeah. shadowy duplicate, my belloc, if you will. Yeah, so some something like that will have to be uh, fixed. But There's, there's going to be four Rough Riders and two Congos yes. in the Canadian Football League. Well, let's uh, put a pin in that one then. And I think uh, since you have to go and, and change this whole Congo situation, it's time to uh, let you go. But we'll be back uh, next week uh, with uh, a similar assortment of Ken and Robin-style nonsense. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askvagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. Impro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Give us the sand we need to continue, and by sand I mean money, by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Chris Lydon. Andrew Collins. Luke Steyer. Robert Dean and Steve K. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our hottest new design, Carcosa Fandango. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>